Our first lesson is from the first book of Samuel, the third chapter. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and visions were not widespread. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his room. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, Samuel. And he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. The Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not been revealed to him. The Lord called to Samuel a third time, and he got up and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Now the Lord came and stood there, calling as before, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. got an email this week that said, Dear Sir, we're sorry to hear about your uncle, but if you give us a little bit of information, we can, hang, we can give you his $25 million estate. <laughs> and I knew it was real because it said, Dear Sir. Like, and then I got another email that said, Dear Presbyterian. And I knew right then that somehow I was tied to you all into this place in a way that felt really personal or not. It makes me wonder, as we think about um, what is meaningful in passages like today, I think one of the things that's really powerful is when we can use someone's name. There's something really meaningful about it. Like when I get an email that actually has my name in it, I kind of think they took a little bit of effort to make sure it was me, and they said, and they used my name. And when I don't, like, dear sir, like, I don't want to feel that old or that, that get that kind of whatever that means. I want somebody to actually address me with my name. It means something to me. In the Bible, there are these, um, there, there is a lot of examples where names matter. When Moses is walking by the burning bush, God doesn't say, hey, you, walking by. He says, hey, Moses, stop and look. When Zacchaeus is up in the tree watching Jesus walk by, Jesus actually stops and says, hey, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm going to your house tonight. In our passage today, how does God address Samuel? Samuel. One of my one of my favorite names, I have to admit. It actually means God listens. But it, there's something very personal about the way God engages with people. And it all makes me kind of think that, that there's this 
board out there that has people's names on it. What is it like when you hear your name spoken? How do you feel? Honored? Like somebody noticed me. Like I'm a real person. I'm not a just a hey you. Which, you know, we get those. But it kind of makes me wonder, what would happen if we took that board as seriously as God does when God uses names like Samuel or Moses or Zacchaeus? How might people feel if they knew that we were ready for them to come and for them to get to know us? Or what would it be like if we were to actually say, not just simply good morning, but Good morning, Debbie, or good morning, Ryan. And we actually learned how to use people's names because they have their name tag on or because we know them. There's something personal about it, just like our faith. And I guess I'm wondering, what could we do to become a little bit more intentional about the way we use people's names so that we're doing what God does? Calling people by name and noticing who they Let me invite you to get to know somebody's name today and get to know who they are a little bit more uh, because with that name, so that in in our coffee hours, in our ministry, in the way we are known in our community, we don't just know people. We don't just know Sir. We don't just know Presbyterian. We know people's names. Gracious God, we pray that you would help us to hear today you speaking our name, speaking it out of love, speaking it knowing that you want to know who we are and what we do. And help us, we pray, as you know us, to learn how to know one another so that we may be a people who are community together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to add a detail. If you don't have your name tag or you forgot your name tag or you don't have one, we always have name tags and writing utensils at both entrances of the sanctuary. And we'd love to invite everyone to wear a name tag if you feel comfortable. Yes. Yes. Okay, okay. So there's a request for name tags to be kind of uh, a little higher than lower, too. Okay. But um, if you need a name tag, uh, if you need a magnetic backing for your name tag, Lisa can help with all of that in the office. And there are name tags. The magnetic board is down there. You can leave your name tag there during the week so you don't have to worry about forgetting it on Sunday. That is an important detail, Dick. I mean, to have that in the right place. And, and right side up, too, is always helpful as well, isn't it? Yeah. Our second scripture reading today comes from John chapter 1. Listen for God's word and wisdom to us today. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him about whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. When Jesus was 
when Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, he said to him, Here is truly an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael asked him, Where did you get to know me? Jesus answered, I saw you under the fig tree before Philip called you. Nathanael replied, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered, Do you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater works than these. And he said to him, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. It's been fun this week to hear from many of you what your star word is for 2024. If you don't know what I'm talking about for several for the last several years, we have sent out yellow laminated stars to people in our church over the age of 10 for epiphany. Each star has a word on it. It's not like a fortune on a fortune cookie. It's a word that's meant to guide you in the coming year. If you haven't received a word and would like one, we'd be happy to give you one. Some of you are quite happy with your word, and some of you are not. So let me take a moment here for a public service announcement about your star word. Tammy and I did not orchestrate some sort of backroom deal so that you get the word that you did. We don't sit in a room with words and a list of people and say, oh, she needs that word. (laughs) Or he definitely needs to get that word. We stay out of the process of who gets which word, and we trust the spirit. Our only part has been to cut the star words out this year with the help of members of session and participants in the Wednesday night Bible study. So big thanks to them. Okay, PSA over. The reason I like hearing about your word is as much about your response or reaction to the word as it is the word itself. I love my word. That's a great word some of you have shared. I don't like my word at all. Can I have a new one? Others have said. Can I trade my word with somebody? We've even heard asked. But perhaps my favorite response is, hmm, what am I supposed to do with that word? That's really the question for all of us, not just the people who are most surprised or or maybe a little disappointed about their word. What am I supposed to do with this word? That's the real question. And it's the intention in the question that matters. If our intention is that we have we, that we have to like the word, then we probably won't let the word guide us very far. But if our intention is let the word ask some questions about who we are and what we do, then we're opening ourselves up to growth and awareness and insight. To be clear, the star words aren't about making resolutions or setting goals. They aren't about achieving more in the new year or accomplishing more tasks. They're about listening for what is calling to you and me in our life and faith throughout the year. They invite us to look for a greater wisdom at work in the world than we can see right now. They are meant to help us see the presence of God in ways that we don't yet. This kind of practice of following a word and asking what it means for our life dates back to the 2nd and 3rd centuries of the Christian faith, 
when some of the earliest followers of Jesus Christ went out into the desert of Egypt, Syria, and Palestine to, dis- to, to cultivate a life of simplicity and devotion to the presence of the divine in their lives. Today, we often call them the desert fathers and mothers, or the Abbas and Amas. Novices or other young disciples would approach one of these revered Amas or Abbas and their, uh, of their community, and they would say, give me a word. They were not asking for a solution to life's problems, but something that would inspire more wholehearted living. Back then, a wise member of the community would offer a novice a phrase or a a couple of sentences that would then shape their questions about their faith and and how to live it well. Christine Painter writes, this tradition of asking for a word was a way of seeking something on which to ponder for many days, weeks, months, sometimes a whole lifetime. The word was often a short phrase to nourish and challenge the receiver. A word was meant to be wrestled with and slowly grown into over time. So how might we wrestle with and grow into our star words over time? What epiphany is there to see next with the guidance of our words? We're going to find some answers. It's it's inevitable if our intention is to be open to the guidance of the word and how it helps us look at the world, and our lives. I was reminded this week, though, that we have to ask the question. We have to seek the wisdom. We have to be open to the insight that is far more than the answers we already know. I was reminded of that this week when I came across a quote that that I have read any number of times throughout my ordained ministry and have probably shared with you any number of times. The quote comes from a letter Rainier Maria Rilke wrote to 19-year-old Franz Kappas in 1903. Franz must have been really impatient with life and really impatient with the search for answers to life's most important questions. He must have been like many young adults who don't want to wait to discover life's wisdom or even search for it sometimes and often confuse it with many other immediate things that fill our lives but don't necessarily make life worth living. To the young seeker, Rilke wrote, I want to beg you as much as I can, dear sir, to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. At this point, and and this is the point, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without even noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. This time, as I heard Rilke's words, I heard him say, the point is to live everything. What's the question or questions of life and faith that help us do that, to live everything? How will our star word help us live that? And if we listen carefully to Rilke, how is our striving in life right now helping or hurting our living? Much like that quote from Rilke, our 
scripture readings are quite familiar to me and perhaps to many of you as well. They always show up in the lectionary during the season of Epiphany, that season of the Christian year when we ask what it is we're called to see in this world in new and next ways because of the incarnation. These aren't new passages. If you remember reading them or hearing them before in worship, the details of the stories haven't changed. But we have. We've changed. We are reading these passages a year older now, and we have a year's more experience, perhaps, and maybe a little bit more understanding and wisdom, too. So what is there for us to see in the stories today? What new insight might we find that will shape the way we live as people of faith now, this year? Questions like that are at the heart of the scripture readings themselves. Samuel is a young apprentice under Eli, the chief priest of the Ark of the Covenant. It had become rare in those days to hear God speaking, and most people didn't seem too bothered by that. They seemed pretty comfortable with God not speaking, in fact. They had built a life around God not speaking. If God seemed, seemed silent or absent, it kind of lets you think anything you want about God including that God's on your side no matter what you do. It lets you off the hook of how you deal with, with people or, or seek justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. And it certainly means that you don't need to respect creation as a source of the divine. On top of that, the, the priest Eli wasn't just getting old. The chief religious authority was losing his ability to see and hear God. Even religion wasn't working. One has to wonder if God had stopped speaking or if the people had stopped listening, stopped seeking insight, stopped honoring the presence of the divine in all things so that they couldn't hear God speak anymore. Because God did speak to the young boy Samuel three times. But Samuel didn't recognize that it was God. And why would he? No one was there to teach him. He thought it was the elderly priest Eli calling him to ask for help. But even though he couldn't hear God anymore, Eli understood one more time what was happening. And he told Samuel that if you hear the voice of God, say, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. When Samuel, said what, when Samuel said that the next time, he heard his name. He heard God speak his name. God went on to say, I'm about to do something in, in Israel that will make both ears of anyone who hears it tingle. The experience was so powerful that Samuel lay awake all night long until morning, pondering what it meant for his people and for himself. But one thing Samuel never had to doubt again, according to the story, was that the Lord was with him. In our second reading, some of Jesus' first disciples were also asking questions and, start and, and seeking answers. The first person Jesus encountered was Philip. Jesus invited Philip to look at the world in a different way by giving him a new word, follow me. Then Philip found Nathanael and shared the word that had changed everything for him. 
We have found him about whom Moses in the law and of the prophet and the prophets wrote, Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nathanael asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip gave him a new word then. Come and see. Philip's words didn't answer Nathanael's question, but instead invited and asked him to look for himself. Philip invited Nathanael to do his own exploration and ultimately to see the word had become flesh and was living among them, to see heaven and earth present in Jesus, the same thing Jesus would in turn invite them to discover in themselves and all of creation. Follow me. Come and see so that you too can discover God present in you and the world around you. What's the wisdom for us to see next that will reveal the incarnation in new and next ways to us? Over the last three years, Tammy and I have spent a lot of time exploring that question. It goes to the heart and purpose of my sabbatical, my own evolving faith, and my own desire for wholeheartedness. It shapes the way we see the world, not simply as a broken place to escape from, but as the very dwelling place of God, as the place where what is deepest in us and in all of creation is of God. At a Celtic wisdom retreat with John Philip Newell last year, we did something I had never done before to experience that insight. We were instructed to go outside and after a teaching and find a tree or a bush or a rock or a flower, something that called to us. I was drawn to a group of three trees of different sizes and ages. Then we were supposed to sit there in front of the natural object and say, what wisdom do you have for me today? I'm listening. I sat there for 10 to 15 minutes and looked and listened and paid attention to what came to light for me and in me in the encounter. It was an opportunity to let the big book of creation speak to me the way I let the little book of scripture speak. It was a way of honoring the presence of God in creation, not in theory, but in practice. It was a way of seeking insights in far more ways and places than I perceived before. I gained new insight that day as I let God speak. Whether we say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, or what wisdom do you have for me today? I'm listening, or what am I supposed to do with that word? They all invite the same thing. The opportunity to see God in new and next ways. They invite us to see people and creation in ways that lead to their health and wholeness. They invite us to gain insight my star words, by the way, and perceive more going on than we often notice. And if Rilke's right, we won't just learn to live the question, we won't only live into the answers someday, we'll learn to live everything now with greater wisdom and with more wholeheartedness the way God intended.